This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Have you heard the saying, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story? Today's book is not a story. It's a book of facts. And it's facts we should all be aware of, especially with an election looming. The book is called Facts and Other Lies. Welcome, Ed Coper. Thanks, Jan. Thanks for having me on. Ed, your book starts with philosophy and our ability to tell the truth. But how good are people at lying? Well, people are very good at lying because it is a very normal part of human cognition. The reason that we do this is because we have many more important things to our brain than the truth, like getting along with each other. So someone might say to me, oh, Ed, your hair looks fantastic today. They might be lying, but they care more about my feelings than they do Mm. about telling the truth. So there's there's a lot of very good reasons why we lie. When facts are enhanced by a little lie, a story and our curiosity kicks in. But how good are we at lie detecting? Well, we're very good liars and we are terrible lie detectors. Uh, And the reason for this is that people are mostly truthful and lies would never work unless we were truthful most of the time. Uh, no, nobody would fall for a lie if they expected everything that came out of someone's mouth to be untruthful. So we get a great evolutionary benefit from telling the truth to each other and trusting information that we give to each other. So if I warn you about a woolly mammoth that's around the corner, uh, it's a very important to, to our group community survival that you believe me and run away. Uh, And that's why lies are so effective and they wouldn't be effective if we were particularly good lie detectors. Well, what about lies from politicians? You give many examples from American politics and my favourite, there was the vice president and he told the voting public, don't vote for the president again, he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) We came through the age of information where this fact could be proven wrong. And, and here I'd like Ed Coper to read a little bit from Facts and Other Lies, page 67. Before the digital age, we searched for facts by asking to be pointed to documents and texts that would contain the answers. Now we search for facts directly. We have been conditioned to expect the instant gratification of knowing the answer to whatever we are seeking instantly. It has ruined pub trivia. It certainly has. Everybody's on their phones finding out something. But now you say we're out of the age of information. We're into the age of disinformation. The information age was great. We had all this access to an unlimited amount of information and we all heralded it as this utopian era where uh, we would be liberated through information. Unfortunately, there was such a volume of information and it moved onto platforms that didn't favour all information equally. It favoured information that would tug at our heartstrings or lead us to outrage or tears or anger or fear. And so it's not a level playing field. And that has meant we have moved from an information age into a disinformation age where we are easily manipulated and falsehoods are favoured over truth. Look, you write that really well from page 228. Would you do that, please, for us, Ed? It talks about this study from MIT that found 
Fake stories inspired fear, disgust and surprise and spread farther, faster, deeper and more broadly than the truth in all categories. Emotion is a great trigger for our shortcuts to fake news. Emotion. Donald Trump has had fact checkers, but his voters prefer the lies. Well, a lot of people looked at Donald Trump and they said, how can people support this guy? He lies all the time. And uh, some poor researchers sat down and they, they, they listened to every single thing he said in the 2016 campaign. So our, our heart goes out to them. But they found that 70% of everything that came out of his mouth was false. But what they don't understand is those lies were a signal to his tribe that he was a good person for lying because they were weapons against the established elites and the political classes and Washington, D.C. And every time I tell a lie, he said, I'm really sending a signal to, to, to his own tribe that he's a good person, not a bad person, because it's a bit of a middle finger to the, uh, to the elite political class, and they loved that when he did it. There's a mathematical term which is now in common vocabulary, algorithm. I had no idea just how important this was to disinformation. This is something that's so key for people to understand why we have moved into a disinformation age. There is so much information out there. Imagine all of the billions of things posted on Facebook in Australia every day. And it's unwieldy for us to deal with that information. So we outsource our thinking to a computer program that will take all of the things posted on a social media platform and that computer program will decide what we want to see based on what they know about us. Now, uh, these technology platforms know a scary amount about us as individuals and they take that information they say, you know, I think, Jan, uh, you look like you're really into fiction. I'm going to show you some, some interesting posts about books that I think you're going to love. And that might be wonderful for you. But unfortunately, what it also does is it takes another person and says, hey, you look like you might be a Nazi. I'm going to show you a recommendation to join this neo-Nazi group. And that's where a lot of people have, have, have encountered extreme thoughts and fringe opinion on social media because the algorithm thinks they might be interested in it. You talk about this social media taking them down a rabbit hole. Yeah, this is what it does. These, these platforms are publicly listed companies that need to increase their share price. Mm -hmm. And the sorts of things that, um, that the market looks for in terms of the value of a social media platform is how much time is an individual person spending on that platform. And if they can increase the amount of time they spend on that platform, then the company becomes more valuable. So how do you do that? Well, you keep recommending more and more things that, that a person might be interested in. So instead of showing them the same thing over and over again, they said, what if we show them something that's related but a bit different? And if you do that, then every video you watch takes you slowly down a journey. And 
they found that you can go from a very innocuous place to a very harmful place where you're encountering violent extremism and you get lured into these like a, like a cult or a conspiracy theory, one recommended video at a time. So that is the rabbit hole that uh, you get drawn into and then they cut you off from any kind of mitigating contradictory information that might pull you out of it and only show you things that have already radicalised you and reinforced what you might be thinking. Is there a side of politics that's better using these algorithms? Well, at the moment there is. This is really something that's coming uh, from the very far-right conservative ecosystem, the kind of Trump-style ecosystem. So it doesn't mean that this has something to do with ideology, that one side of politics is able to, uh, you know, weaponise their information more successfully than the other. It's just that this is this is a trend that has really come from uh, the uh, that US Trump-style political ecosystem that is much more global than people realise, where they were the first ones to realise that you could piggyback on some of these, uh, some of these tech platform uh, shortcuts that they provide to really uh, whip people into a frenzy and then connect them to each other to do something about it, whether it's voting or going and storming the capital. Uh, and so these, the, anyone can do this. Any side of politics can, can do this. But um, the, the things that have been found to be most engaging have been in Australia, politicians like Craig Kelly, Pauline Hanson, Clive Palmer, uh, Malcolm Roberts, you know, all of these people are the most engaged with politicians on social media in Australia. And there's no coincidence that those are also the people sharing the most disinformation. So there is a connection there because disinformation is very engaging and that's why people do it. And what happens if you go online to berate these platforms? Well, this is a big part of the problem because... Sometimes when we see something in our own feed and we want to draw attention to it to point out just how wrong it is or just how harmful it is, this feeds the beast. This is, uh, this is how the algorithm works. They say, wow, this piece of, uh, of news is very popular. All these people are engaging with it. We're going to show it to more people. Uh, whether or not the people who, with it, who were engaging with it were doing so to say, don't look at this, don't read this, this is fake, this is false news, this is disinformation, stay away. The, the algorithm doesn't, uh, doesn't account for that. And every time you comment on something to say uh, this is false, you're actually just uh, showing it to more people. The important message in the book is how, as an individual, we can diffuse disinformation. And you'll have to work out why the Streisand effect isn't of any use. You'll have to read the book to find out that. But even when Donald Trump was banned from Twitter, he started his own blog. But why wasn't that successful? Well, this is a great experiment that we we're able to run to say, is this something about what Donald Trump says that is so engaging? Or is this a problem of how the social media platforms reward the type of things that he says. So on social media, Trump was incredibly effective and engaging. Uh, sometimes he'd have 90% of all the engagement in US politics on any given day. But when he went and got banned from Facebook and just put it on his blog, what happened? Nobody read it. Nobody came when he built it. 
And so what this says is that the reason why people like Donald Trump are successful is because of the algorithm, because once you remove the algorithm and take your thumb off the scale, in fact, nobody was interested in what Donald Trump had to say. And when you get to an individual who says, I did my own research, what should we suspect? Well, the thing is, we all like to think that we're very rational beings and our self-perception, regardless of how correct or incorrect our opinions are, is that we're all very rational. So we dress up our opinions in science and research and we we claim to have a greater uh, ownership of the truth. Um, But the reality of how our brains work is we're not very rational at all. And so when someone says, I did my research, you should do your research, the world is actually flat. Um, we We think that person's clearly wrong. They've looked at all the information out there and they haven't let haven't come to the wrong to the right conclusion. Um, but we all do this. We all, we all filter information for our own biases. And that's just led that person to somewhere very different from where it's led us, if we might think that the, the world is round. And so they might have encountered something that was a very entertaining and engaging story that drew them in about the world being flat. And then they count that as research because on the internet, all information is afforded the same real estate. It doesn't matter if it came from the World Health Organization or from Pete Evans or you know someone blogging in their basement, it all looks the same. So we aren't very good at telling the difference between research that is actual research and research that just makes us feel like we've come to a rational conclusion. Ed Coper, there's 30 pages of references and over 10 pages of an index. Is it a heavy document? No. The material is very is very dense and there's a lot of information, but as the book says, people only listen to information when it's a good story. So it's important for it to be engaging and contain humour and anecdotes, and that's not just for entertainment. It's because when you entertain, the information becomes a bit stickier. There are understandable examples. There's personal insights and humour. I know I won't think of the historical time of enlightenment now in any other form. Can you read from page 22? The Enlightenment was an effort to supplant blind faith with critical inquiry, superstition with logic, and belief with rational justification. It was, as the great Australian philosopher and intellectual John Farnham coined it in his seminal work, the Age of Reason. Facts and Other Lies gives background information about why fake news spreads and how politicians, especially right-wing conservatives, have exploited it so successfully. Ed Coper uses extensive research but writes cleverly with specific examples and humour and even explains how individuals can diffuse disinformation. Thank you, Ed. Thanks, Jan. And now it's David's turn. Josh Kemp takes us to the Western Australian outback in his novel Bunjawa, where his drug-addicted protagonist finds a gothic darkness he never expected. So, Josh, welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. Gareth Hoyle, your central character, is a drug addict, and his perceptions of the world are somewhat distorted, and this comes out from the very first page. They told him 
he always saw more than what was really there. You play on this notion of distortion. Absolutely, yeah. I, I really wanted to investigate how um, perceptions could be altered by not just drug use, but also uh, trauma. I think Hoyle is a, a deeply traumatised person. Um, how uh, memories and experiences can be so overwhelming that someone might, um, it, it's almost like their, their brain is trying to protect them. It's like a self-defence mechanism. It's sort of, to a degree, a, a curtain comes down. Um, and so, of course, you're not going to see everything clearly or you're not going to see everything. Um, you're sort of seeing things through, through a filter uh, to protect yourself. Um, and then, of course, here's this deeply injured person who unfortunately turns to the wrong kind of coping mechanism, and that be uh, substance use. Um, and then that, you know, just physically has an effect on the brain, which alters your perception too. So there was these, these sort of double layers of things going on. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, he's really someone who, seeing through both these layers, yeah, doesn't, doesn't quite see things the way other people do. Well, we add to this layering of storytelling because Gareth has actually now written a novel about his experiences when he was on the Banjuan station shearing sheep with his fellow friends, you might like to call them, or family, Turk, Stella, Clay <laughs> yeah. and Karen. But that's a whole other perception of reality, the storytelling. Absolutely, yeah. That was something I was really interested in, in exploring was how authors have so much power, right? The storyteller has so much power in, um, you know, just telling a story. But at the end of the day, you're really only sort of telling the story from one perspective. And when you're writing about a person like that Hall does, you know, sort of thinly veiled, fictionalised versions of these people, you're only sort of representing them for how you see them. And, of course, you can never see all of a person. You know, uh, you know a human being is such an intricate, intricate complex thing. Um, and, of course, Hoyle, again, having seized the world in such a skew-if way, um, that also affects the way he depicts these people. But it also then affects the way they react and behave. They are very upset. Yes. And uh, I think um, when people read the book and see the ways depicted them, they might understand why. <laughs> but it, there's, there's no sort of, um, there's, he's also not attempted to understand, um, particularly like the character of Karen. Like there's, there's not much um, attempt to understand uh, why he's depicted her in the way he has or, or the way she, or why she behaves possibly the way she does sometimes. The other interesting one is Clay and the story Clay has told as an Indigenous man, and this is, in fact, culturally insensitive and causes Clay to be uh, isolated from his own community. Yeah, so um, I, I'm doing my PhD at the moment in uh, Australian Gothic, and um, I quite often come across novels or um, short stories where Indigenous religious beliefs are referred to or, or even just like completely fleshed out. And it's always a worry, I think, 
uh, I, I get concerned that the authors haven't haven't sought out permission um, because it, you know it is a form of cultural appropriation and and there's a sort of there's a, a long and terrible history of that particularly in Australian Gothic fiction so that was just sort of like my attempt to um, look at the responsibility of the author particularly as a, a non-indigenous person when you're dealing with Indigenous issues. It tells us a lot about the power of story within society and especially within the Indigenous community. Absolutely, you know, um, and, and Indigenous religious beliefs are so um, concentrated on the act of storytelling and this idea of, of responsibilities, people being responsible for stories. So the idea that a non-Indigenous person would sort of appropriate this and, and just take it it's another form of theft. It's another form of um, cultural theft. Moving on then, Gareth meets Luna, a 10-year-old girl who has locked herself in the toilet of a crack house. And this is where pathos and reality collide. Gareth, as an addict, can't even help himself, but he attempts to help Luna. This is a fascinating juxtaposition. Yeah, I liked the idea of um, he was someone who, you know, he, he's numbed himself to his own experiences so much that when he opens, he accidentally breaks the toilet door, right, and sort of finds Luna sitting there. It's almost like he's he's forced to face up to certain things that he's been trying to get away from um, and, yeah, launches in sort of into a, a not very thought-out attempt to... Um, help out this little girl. But in so doing, we discover then that Luna has a backstory and Gareth has a backstory and they're almost in parallel. Well, I think that sort of follows the idea that um, I think I was trying to write about how trauma is, in a sense, universal. I mean, not everyone's experience of trauma is the, is the same at all, but through the story I was trying to show how um, traumatised people um, can help each other, uh, how there can be, how friendships can grow in, in that sense. But Luna also then adds another layer to this storytelling. She sees the world from a 10-year-old's perspective. There's also the notion of nightmare and dreams in her account of things and her way of interacting, especially with the rock wheeler, which I found fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I, I love the image of this, you know, this 10-year-old girl and this huge animal, which people are unfortunately usually um, treat as a very frightening or threatening animal when obviously that's not always the case. I've grown up with rock wheelers myself and... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the the nightmare um, element of Luna's perspective that was, I think, that's meant to like bounce off Hoyle's. So Hoyle often has sort of nightmarish hallucinations, and and that's because of his drug use. But um, obviously, as a child, your uh, your fear gets on top of you, and you sort of inflate things in your imagination. So I wanted those two things to sort of bounce off and work off each other. One of those points of inflation is this image of a bear, which is mm. what we have when the story begins. A meteor has crashed. There are poor prints in the soil and sand. And so this notion of a bear, how can that possibly be? 
is this perhaps a distorted way of seeing what has happened? But then Luna is carrying a bear and then we can look at the notion of the bear metaphorically as a lurking monster. How much should we read into this? <laughs> it wasn't planned, but now I look back at it, it, it all just completely makes sense. And, you know, these are the things that happen when you're writing as your subconscious makes these connections without you, yeah, being aware of it. Um, I mean, the bear, I think, um, is interesting because I liked the idea of Hoyle being afraid of this thing which just cannot exist in, in the Australian bush, something so um, dissimilar to native fauna. And at the same time, you've got Luna has this bear who I think that I think his name is Gary, by the way. And he I think he comes to represent the men in her life at times, this sort of sense of untrustworthiness or um, being failed by men, I think. She talks to the bear as if it's alive and real, as children do, uh, and yeah. such. So for many people, this is a very real thing, uh, bringing something Absolutely. to life like that, and your fears as well. Mm. Gareth tries to find Luna's father, and it's here that the novel begins to take on a much darker and sinister tone. Parallels and connections between all of these people are revealed as are the nature of people's action. And the bear almost virtually comes to life, that sinister darkness. We find ourselves in Banjuan. That's where the Gothic comes in. What are you trying to create here? I was really interested in um, exploring a sense of inner darkness, sort of jumping back to that, that idea that Hoyle imagines there's this bear. It's almost like he's imbuing the idea with, things about himself that he doesn't want to own up to or doesn't want to deal with. Um, I think same with Luna. She's sort of imbuing Gary with her fears. And all of this is sort of leading up to Banjuan where, where it all sort of um, uh, explodes, um, to say the least. And the most frightening aspect in many ways are the two children of Turk and Stella, Dunst and Richie. How do you account for their behaviour? I really liked the idea of, um, like it almost started off as an idea about dark, a dark satire about the family unit and these roles I think men and women are expected to play. Um, and quite often when unprepared for those roles, you know, and we're ex almost expected to sort of disarticulate ourselves ourselves to the point that we have to fill them no matter what. And I thought that was interesting to explore in, to take that a little bit further and explore it in children um, and see what happens when children are expected to fill these roles. And the boys in particular, I think, are, are really mirroring their father and this, this idea of this dark alpha male. But you can see how things become more distorted. You've just taken a reality and then just pushed it mm. over the edge. So at this point, if the reader wants to find out what that darkness is, what happens to Gareth Hoyle and Luna and whether Luna actually finds her father and her place in the family, they are going to have to go out and buy Banjuan. The author, 
is Josh Kemp, and it's a University of Western Australia publishing release. So, Josh, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you, David. That was great. Thanks, Mike. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.